Now, we come here in this ninth chapter, and again I must repeat it, that this section that began back with chapter 7, and it goes through chapter 12, they are prophecies that Isaiah made during the reign of Ahaz. And Ahaz is the one bad egg during this period that Isaiah prophesied. He began at the death of Uzziah. Uzziah had been a good king, reigned 52 years. Now he's gone. Jotham, his son, came to the throne, and he was a good king. But then Ahaz was the grandson of Uzziah, and the son of Jotham, of course, and he was really a bad king, and quite a phony, by the way. And these prophecies concerning the Messiah come out of this particular period. It's a dark period in the history of the nation. And here you have a prophecy of the coming child to sit on David's throne. And the dark days which attended both his first coming and will precede his second coming. Now, I suppose that the ninth chapter of Isaiah like very much the 53rd chapters, familiar to Christians. And that, of course, is generally speaking. They are familiar with it because Handel in the Messiah has actually the very words of Isaiah set to music. And it's always, to me, a very thrilling time in the presentation of the Messiah when they get to that part where it says, "...his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor and the Mighty God." I'm sure by now this is all familiar to most of you listening in. And yet, the church has a familiarity with this section, and in spite of that, I would say that there's no passage more enigmatic or misunderstood than this particular passage. We find here in the translation of verse 1 that it's actually not established, and it's the belief of many commentators that the two viewpoints are those that should be considered here. We'll look at that, of course, in just a few moments. And then it has to do with Galilee. And Galilee was the despised area and a place where Gentiles had congregated. Now, the Lord Jesus, he passed by Jerusalem, the snobbish religious center of the day. He wasn't born there, and he wasn't raised there. He made his headquarters in the despised periphery of the kingdom. And we find that when his own hometown of Nazareth rejected him, they could not accept him. Then he went down to Capernaum, which is on the Sea of Galilee in this area. And we're told in Matthew, the fourth chapter, beginning with verse 12, Now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the seacoast in the borders of Zabulon and Naphtali that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zabulon and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, 
The people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. Now, you'll notice that Matthew will leave out now this questionable clause here in verse 1 that we have. And I'm going to read now verse 1. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was inner vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, the question has been, should it be rendered, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles, and others have translated, hath made it glorious. Well, if it is to be translated, it hath made it glorious, it would refer to the first coming of Christ. But the first makes it refer to, of course, the second coming of Christ. Which one is it? Well, I think Matthew made it very clear that it referred to his first coming, because yonder in that rejected area, Zebulun and Naphtali, they were located in the north. Naphtali was on the west bank of the Sea of Galilee, and Zebulun adjoining Naphtali on the west. Nazareth was in the tribe of Zebulun, and Capernaum, which was Jesus' headquarters, was in Naphtali. And as far as I can tell, the Lord Jesus never changed his headquarters from Capernaum. In fact, that's the reason he pronounced such a judgment upon that place, because they had access to light as no other place had. Now, verse 2 reads, "...the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined." Now, regardless of the translation and the interpretation of verse 1, it's very obvious that the people in despised Galilee, they were in the darkness of paganism and religious tradition. There was where the Old Testament and the paganism from the outside mingled and mixed. But the Lord Jesus began his ministry in that area. They did see a great light. They saw the Lord Jesus, the light of the world. And he said in John 8, verse 12, "...then spoke Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world." He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now, this was fulfilled at the first coming of Christ. And I think, obviously, these first two verses refer to his first coming. But what about from here on? Now, I want you to notice something very carefully. It is the belief of certain outstanding Bible expositors among them Dr. F.C. Jennings and Dr. H.A. Ironside, that there is a hiatus or there is a pause and there is a period, an interval, between verses 2 and 3. So that verse 2 refers to his first coming. Verse 3 now refers to his second coming. Now, will you notice that? Let me read verse 3 
of chapter 9 of Isaiah. Thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy in harvest, and his men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Now, the nation had been greatly multiplied, and they were more religious, but the joy was gone. And if I may make a parody on a modern cigarette commercial, they were going to church more, but they were enjoying it less. They had a lot of religion, but they never had Christianity, never had Christ. And therefore, this was the period of a great outward manifestation, but no real joy at all. Now, this is a parenthesis between two and three that's already been 2,000 years long. And why didn't Isaiah fill it in? Why, it's very simple. Because the church was something unknown to Isaiah. Paul in Romans 16, 25, and 26 says, Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. Now, Paul makes it very clear that which the prophets did not see, they passed over it, as Isaiah does here. We'll come to another chapter, 63, where in one verse, in just a comma, he passes over a period, and that comma's already 2,000 years long. And we find here that these people, that is, they had no revelation concerning the church. But now the church is revealed. And today, this interval is filled in. Now, that is going to make it very clear that the rest of this chapter refers to the nation Israel. And he says here, Thou hast multiplied the nation. And we're talking now about the nation that Ahaz is the king. This is the nation of Israel. Paul says here that it's made known to all nations for the obedience of faith, so that we have a different congregation for the revelation. And here it is just for the one nation. Now, notice this. It's important to see. Verse 4 says, For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the days of Midian. Now, when will that be broken? Well, it'll be broken when Christ comes. Why is it that that little nation today can't enjoy peace? Why is it that they are plagued on every border today? Well, simply because, my friend, they've rejected the only one that can bring peace, their own Messiah. And for that reason, it will be broken, the oppressor, when he comes the second time. Now, verse 5. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood, but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. And what a sad thing it was 
when they were sent back from Munich, the bodies of these fine young Jewish athletes sent back to Israel and the mourning of the loved ones there and the mourning of the nation, if you please. Now, what's back of all of this? Well, they have a Messiah that they've rejected, and he is the Prince of Peace, and he's the only one that can bring peace. Now, these verses, I think, complete the thought of verse 3, and they look beyond the immediate to the great tribulation period that's coming. Now, there's going to come one. Verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace. There shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. And how will this come about? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now, is this a reference to the first coming of Christ? Well, we think so today, that is. The church does, the average church. I do not think it refers to the first coming of Christ at all. It refers to the second coming of Christ when he'll be born to this nation. And it's in a very interesting fashion. Now, notice this. This is a complete prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ at his second coming, as the 53rd chapter is of his first coming. And these verses, they continue the thought that we picked up at verse 3, and they look forward to the second coming of Christ. And the question arises, of course, how can a child is born at his second coming? Well, first of all, let us clearly state that he was not born unto us, the nation Israel, at his first coming. They didn't receive him. He came unto his own. His own received him not, John 1, 11. He was born at Bethlehem the first time, but this is not the reference here because they didn't accept him. A few shepherds were there. Wise men came from the east. They were Gentiles. They were the ones. The other portion was not fulfilled of them. Neither verses 3 and 5, nor verse 7 here. Christ will be born to the nation Israel at his second coming. Perhaps it's better to state it this way. They will be born as a nation at once. This is made perfectly clear in the last chapter of Isaiah. Listen to this. Before she traveled, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child. Who hath heard such a thing? Who hath seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travail, that's the great tribulation, she brought forth her children, and they will be born again at the second coming of Christ. And that sense, he's born to them. Israel is to be delivered of a man-child in the future, but by their birth, not his. This will be the new birth 
of the nation Israel when he comes. Therefore, this section here refers to the second coming of Christ. And I see no objection to call attention that the child is born, that's his humanity, the son is given. And that'll be true in that day. In other words, it'll be the same Jesus that was here 1,900 years ago. Now, the government will be upon his shoulder. And that shoulder speaks of strength. The government of this world will be placed on his strong shoulders at his second coming. It was not at his first coming, and that's according to the Word of God. Now, notice the names here. His name shall be called Wonderful. Now, Wonderful is not an adjective here. This is his name. You have it back in Judges 13, 18, and there you have the pre-incarnate Christ appearing as the captain of the hosts of the Lord. And here we read, Judges 13, 18, And the angel of the Lord said unto him, Why askest thou thus after my name, seeing it is secret? Now, the word secret is the same word translated wonderful. That's his name. And the Lord Jesus said when he was here, None knoweth the Son but the Father. They didn't know him. He was wonderful. That's his name. And there are a lot today don't know that he's wonderful. That's his name. And they're Christians today. Oh, they've trusted him as Savior, but they don't know really how wonderful he is. That's his name. And the remnant were slain, we're told, at the time when he comes to this earth. He's going to put down the rebellion, and he's going to reign. His name is wonderful. And his name is Counselor. Now, he never sought counsel of man, And he never asked for advice. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor? Paul says in Romans 11, 34, God has no counselor. The Lord Jesus never called the disciples together and said, Now, fellas, what do you think I ought to do? You don't read that. He called them together and says, This is what I'm going to do. And he never even put it on his own mind, but I've come to do the Father's will. He is the one to whom we must go. He's made unto us wisdom. Now, my friend, most of us are not very smart. He is. He's made to us wisdom. We're to go to him. And his name is the mighty God, El Gabor. That's the Hebrew. He is the one to whom all power is given. He's the omnipotent God. That little baby lying on Mary's bosom was helpless there. But he held the universe together, that little baby did. And may I say to you that he today is the one who is the mighty God. All power is given unto me, he said. Now he's the everlasting father of the odd. He's the father of eternity. It just simply means that he's the creator of all things. As John said, all things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. And Paul in Colossians 1.16 says, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible. And again, we have in Hebrews 1.2, He hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath pointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the ages. And then he's called the Prince of Peace. Sar Shalohim. There can be no peace on this earth until he's reigning. 
His government is not static, you know, of the increase and growth of his government. No two days are going to be alike. There'll be no monotony when Jesus is reigning, and he's going to occupy the throne of David. Now, this is a literal throne which he'll occupy at his coming, and justice is dominant in his rule. God's zeal, not man's zany and crazy plans, our political gyrations will accomplish this. Now, the rest of the chapter deals with the fact that he's coming. They cover the then local situation, and they were partially fulfilled. And in the then immediate future, but they look on to the time of the great tribulation for a full and final fulfillment. God will continue to punish this nation and all nations that have turned their back on him until he comes. Now, if you want any proof of that, if that doesn't appeal to you, modern men don't like to hear this, you know. They'd rather hear something else. I'd say this to you. Check your history book. See what happened to this nation now? They've had a sad, sordid story. And it's been tragedy for them. And it's been sad and sordid and tragedy for the other nations. And I'm afraid you and I live in a nation today that's getting ripe for judgment. If we escape, we'll be the only nation in the history of the world that has escaped. I don't know about you. I don't think we will. We just don't happen to be God's special little pets. Well, that brings us to the end of chapter 9. Now, friends, as we come to this 10th chapter of Isaiah, again, I'd like to remind you that this is a series of prophecies. began with chapter 7, goes through chapter 12, and they were prophecies that were given during the reign of Ahaz. And he was a wicked king. And on that black background, these prophecies are given. And in that dark moment, Isaiah's speaking into a local situation, and he's looking down through the ages to the time when God is going to set up his kingdom here upon this earth. And we're going to see that as we continue on here. Now, this chapter 10 is a remarkable chapter. And I think I say that about over half of the chapters of the Bible. And I probably ought to say it about all of them. But it's certainly true of this one. And the theme here is God used the Assyrian way back yonder, over 500 years, 700 years before Christ came. And he used the Assyrian to judge Israel. But God will judge the Assyrian, and he did. And then you have here the Great Tribulation and the Battle of Armageddon. Now, there's stated here in this chapter certain great principles and gigantic programs that are in God's dealings with man and nations. And these are all set before us here in this chapter. The chapter opens with a brief discussion on the courts of that day. The injustice of the courts of the nation are reflected in the culture of the people and the chastisement of God. And the Assyrian, we'll see in this chapter, 
He's a symbol and type of the future king of the north who shall come up against Emmanuel's land in the last days. Now, this prophecy reaches beyond the immediate future of Isaiah's day, and it extends down to the last days of the nation Israel. Isaiah identifies the period by the designation in that day. Now, the chapter concludes with the awesome picture of the approach of the enemy from the north to the battle of Armageddon. Now, you can see this is a remarkable chapter. So, in the first four verses, we have the judges of Israel are unjust and will be judged of God. Now, will you listen to this as we begin reading at verse 1? "'Woe unto them that decree unrighteous decrees,' that is, that hand down an unrighteous decision." And they should represent justice, and they're not giving justice. And that right grievousness which they have prescribed. Now, these verses right here at the beginning, you may think that you're reading Plato or one of the moralists of that period and since then, because they're talking about justice. Plato had a great deal to say about that. And the one notable exception, of course, is that back of human justice is the justice of God. The judge and the throne down here are to reveal the justice of God, and they are answerable to him. Now, will you notice verse 2? They turn aside the needy from judgment, and they take away the right from the poor of my people, that widows may be their prey, and that they may rob the fatherless. Now, this is quite remarkable, and it's very much up to date. And I think we're seeing the working out of this in our contemporary culture today, because the condition of the courts, human courts, as they attempt to hand down justice why, they are to mirror the justice of God. And when they don't, lawlessness abounds and people sink into degradation. This idea of freedom today is being stretched just a little. Very candidly, I think that every criminal that's arrested ought to be given a fair trial and all that sort of thing. But my friend, in order that my wife and my daughter and my family can walk the street in peace, he'll have to be punished if he's guilty. And if a judge that is soft-hearted and soft-headed lets him off, he is not giving justice to me and my family and to you and your family. We are hearing so much today about justice. Well, that's what I want. And I want the criminal punished so that I can live in safety in my home, so I can walk the street today in safety. Why? Today in our land, it's not safe for women to walk the street at night, and it's not very safe for men to in many places. Now, what is the problem? problem is in the court. They blame the police today, and they may be to blame to a certain extent. I don't think so, but... 
I'd be willing to make a concession for sake of argument, but I say the trouble is in your courts. And isn't it interesting that that's where God put his finger down? And then the very interesting thing here is that he talks about the needy and the poor. They are the ones that need justice today. They are the ones that need to be protected. I was very much interested in hearing one of the leading political analysts in this country today say on television that every program that has been devised to help the poor has hurt the poor. And you know what is wrong there? The only one that can give justice to the poor is God. He's the only one that can. And when a judge down here does not feel like he's representing God, then I personally, I don't think he's a judge. And today, we have many godless men sitting on a judge's bench. I don't know about you, but I want to say that they're in no position to judge me at all until they recognize they're representing God. I think that's one of the wonderful things about the founders of our country. I hear today so many talk about that they believe like Jefferson did. Well, Jefferson was a free thinker, no question about that. But he had a wonderful respect for the Bible, though he's not what we would call today in our circles a Christian. Yet, my friend, he had a respect for the Word of God and for the statements that are made in it. We've got so far away today that our courts and our government doesn't even recognize God. And it's almost a farce today to have a man put his hand on the Bible and take an oath. It becomes almost comical today because the judge doesn't believe it, the lawyers don't believe it, and the jury doesn't believe it, and the man that's taken the oath doesn't believe it. And my friend, when you don't, you just, well, give them the Sears and Roebuck catalog. And some of them have more respect for it, and they do the Word of God. May I say to you, God is dealing with principles here. And until a judge represents God, he cannot represent the people. And we've gotten so far from that today that I sound like a square. But that's all right. Now, verse 3, "...and what will ye do in the day of visitation and in the desolation which shall come from far? To whom will ye flee for help, and where will ye leave your glory?" Now, God says that you are judging today, and you're to represent me, but the day's coming when I'm going to judge, and I'm going to judge you. And I feel like that every judge or to recognize that he is to stand before God and give an account of how he's handled this responsibility that's been given to him down here. And they have a bleeding heart, and they say they want to give the criminal justice and let him off because he's a poor fellow. Well, my point is that I think they need to begin to crack down on the rich also. Now, verse 4. Without me they shall bow down under the prisoners, and they shall fall under the slain. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. God says that this will affect all stratas of society, and it affects man and brings about its own deterioration, 
and its own degradation. And today, we are at a new low as far as morals are concerned. Verse 5, and I think now verse 5 is the key to the entire passage. Now we've come to one of the strangest statements in the Bible, and it's too much for a great many folk today. I'll get letters on this one. But don't send it to me. Send it to Isaiah or take it up with the Lord, will you? Because I didn't say this. This is what Isaiah wrote, and God said it. Verse 5, O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger and the staff in their hand is mine indignation. Now, we've said this is the key verse of this entire chapter. In fact, this entire passage. And it sheds light on the whole purpose of God. For he says here that he's using Assyria as a rod to chasten his people Israel. My friend, that's an amazing thing. Just as you take up a switch to paddle a little fella, or do you do that? And God says, I'm using the Assyrian like he's a little switch, like he's a board in my hand that I'm using to discipline and punish my people. Now, God says here that he's chastening and he's using Assyria. And now the amazing thing is this, the destruction which they wrought was what the hand of God wrought. And what they did... God did it. God was using them just as a switch. They didn't know it, but that's the way it was. May I say to you, that's too much for a great many people to swallow today. But I'm here to tell you, that's what God says. Now, let me keep reading. I will send him against an hypocritical nation and against the people of my wrath. Will I give him a charge to take the spoil, to take the prey, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Now, God says that he is responsible for sending Sennacherib, the Assyrian, against his people and for taking the northern kingdom of Israel into captivity. And in view of the fact that the Assyrian is a symbol of another kingdom in the north that will be used of God, I'm wondering today if that kingdom might not be Russia. I think it is. Now, there are many of the expositors that believe that this has reference to the beast out of the sea in Revelation 13, and this would be the ruler in the Roman Empire. Well, I much prefer to be specific and say that it is this kingdom that I think, very candidly, is Russia today. Now, have you noticed that ever since World War II, they have won every diplomatic argument or battle. They've won the Cold War, and they have us on the ropes. I wonder if God may not be using them. Somebody says, you don't mean God would use godless communism. Well, he used a godless Assyrian to spank his people, and God may be using Russia to humiliate us today, and they have done that. When we fought in Vietnam, we were not fighting the North Vietnamese. We were fighting Russia. It was a very nice, polite war. And it was a very embarrassing thing. It was tragic. It was an awful thing. May I say to you, God may be responsible for that. He may be the one that was humiliating us. 
trying to bring us to our senses. But it didn't seem to work, did it? Now, did the Assyrian in his day think that he was a rod being used? Verse 7, Howbeit he meaneth not so, neither doth his heart think so, but it's in his heart to destroy and cut off nations, not a few. Why, if you'd ask the Assyrian, he'd laugh at you. And if you'd ask Mr. Lenin or Mr. Stalin, Mr. Khrushchev or Mr. Brezhnev, and say to them, Say, did you know you are a rod in the Lord's hand? I think they'd give you a great big ha-ha. Why, they'd say it's ridiculous. Why, we are communists. We're against God. But you see, you never get away from him. God will even make the pagan heathen Assyrian. And he had no notion that he was prompted of God, and he would certainly never admit it at all. Now, I'm going to drop down just a little here. This Assyrian was having great victories, and the pride of the Assyrian blinded him to see what the facts really were. Because he was resting on his own strength and his supremacy, and he was victorious everywhere he turned. And he was like little Jack Horner that sat in the corner, reached in his thumb and pulled out a plum and said, My, what a smart boy am I. And we got a lot of folk around today and a lot of rulers of nations that are like little Jack Horner. May I say to you, God's overruling, and God may be using these. Now, verse 12. Wherefore, it shall come to pass that when the Lord hath performed his whole work upon Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his high looks. Now, this is even more amazing. God says that when I get through using him to punish my people, then I'm going to judge him. He'll not escape either. And that is exactly, of course, what God did. History bears testimony to that. And God finally dealt with the Assyrian, and he judged him. Now, what Isaiah's doing, he's showing that God controls and judges all the nations of the earth. Now, he asks a very pointed question. Shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth therewith? Imagine an axe out in the woods. You'd walk through the woods, and you'd hear something patting itself on the back and saying, Say, look at this big tree I cut down. And you went over there, and there was nothing but an axe. And you say, What do you mean you cut down a tree? Well, I said, Look at the tree. It's down. I, I did it. But it didn't do it. There had to be somebody using it. And that's all in the world. These nations were. And that's the reason it's so important today for our nation to have men who have a recognition of God and they don't mind standing up and saying. And they look to God for leading and guiding. And I think God would give any people that kind of leading, but we have a nation divided. And believe me, friends, we're lots more divided than a great many people will admit. The way we say it today, this minority group and that minority group and the other minority group. What about the real minority group? God. He's in the minority today. But Luther said, one with God is a majority. And if you're with him, you are with the majority. And it didn't look in Martin Luther's day like he was going to win. And today, we need to be very sure, not that God's on our side, but we're on God's side, because he's running this thing. We as a nation are Johnny-come-lately. 
we just got here about 200 years ago, and there are a great many nations that already are 6,000 years old. And when you've got a 6,000-year-old nation and a nation just 200 years, that's a baby. And we've just about had it, by the way. Now, when we come to verse 20, and here is where I regret that the new Schofield Bible doesn't put down flat-footed here what the old Schofield Bible did. The vision of the Jewish remnant in the great tribulation. And how do you know that? Verse 20, it shall come to pass in that day. Now, we have seen that day is the day of the Lord that begins with the great tribulation period that the remnant of Israel and such as are escaped to the house of Jacob shall no more again stay upon him that smote them, but shall stay upon the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. Now, I think this reached beyond the Assyrian of that day, and it moves down to the last days, which will be the great tribulation period. And you have, beginning with verse 28, one of the most remarkable sections of prophecy. And I'm not going to deal with it in detail but it gives certain geographical locations, all of them north of Jerusalem, and it shows the route that the invader from the north took in that day and the route that apparently when Gog of the land of Magog comes down against Israel in the last days, in that day. And this is something made very clear in the 38th and 39th of Ezekiel. We believe that is Russia. Now, will you notice? Iath is the first place. That's about 15 miles north of Jerusalem. Migron is south of Iath, down toward Jerusalem. And here was the pass where Jonathan got a victory over the Philistines. And I understand General Allenby used this same place to get a victory over Turkey. And then Geba and Ramah, about six miles north, of Jerusalem. Anathoth, about three miles. That's the place that Jeremiah came from. And Lish is the extreme north of Palestine in the tribe of Dan. He came out of that area. Madmima is a dunghill, garbage dump, north of Jerusalem. Geban is probably north of Jerusalem. Exact site, not exactly known. And Nob, the last place mentioned here, is north of Jerusalem and inside of the city. This clearly marks the passage of the enemy. Now, God says, Behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, shall lock the bow with terror. The high ones of stature shall be hewn down, and the haughty shall be on. God intervenes and delivers his people. And this is a reference, I believe, to the second coming of Christ to establish his kingdom. Verse 34, He shall cut down the thickets of the forest with iron, and Lebanon shall fall by a mighty one. And I believe that is the coming of Christ to the earth. Now, friends, in this section, which began back in chapter 7, and it goes through chapter 12, we have here prophecies that actually belong together. There is a progress and development all through this section here. And what we have is prophecies during the reign of Ahaz. And as you move through this section here, we move through last time, especially a time of judgment, a time that the Lord Jesus labeled the Great Tribulation Period. 
And then at the end of that, we have chapter 11. And chapter 11 is one of the great messianic prophecies in Scripture. This 11th chapter is a great messianic prophecy. That is, it speaks of the coming of Christ to establish his kingdom and the type of a program that he'll have. So we have in this chapter the person and power of the king. Then we have the purpose and program of the kingdom. Now, we have here the culmination in chapters 11 and 12. Chapter 11, we see the kingdom established. And in chapter 12, we are going to see the worship of the Lord in the kingdom. Now, let's take a look at this. And this, I think, is one of the great prophecies that we have among the prophets on the setting up of the kingdom. And let me give you the mechanical division that we've made here. This is not hard and fast, but it's merely helpful, and it's in our notes and outlines. We have the person and power of the king, verses 1 and 2. Then we have the purpose of the kingdom in verses 3 through 5. Then we have the particulars of the kingdom in verses 6 through 9, and then the program of the kingdom, verses 10 through 16. Now, I'm reading at verse 1 when we see first the person of the king in verse 1 and the power of the king in verse 2. Now, here in verse 1, "...there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch..." shall grow out of his root. Now, here again, we have this word for branch, and the word rod, of course, is that. We'll deal with that aspect when we get to the 53rd chapter, when we see the Lord Jesus there as the rod and stem and branch that came out of David the king. Now, here, the thing that is interesting is that he's a rod or stem of Jesse. The word means a live sprout comes forth now from the line of David. But the interesting thing here, David's not mentioned. The one that's mentioned is David's father. Of course, that means he's in the line of David. But why go back to Jesse, the father of David? Well, The royal line began with David. Jesse was a farmer. He was a sheep raiser. Lived in that little out-of-the-way place of Bethlehem. That's not so much out of the way today. It's world famous. That Christmas season, the whole world, for some reason, turns there. Although he's not there anymore, of course. But the reason that Jesse is given here, it seems to me, is this, that the line of David, by the time Jesus come, had again gone back no longer to a prince raised in a palace, but to a peasant that's raised now in a carpenter shop instead of out in the sheepfold. And not much difference, actually, as far as position is concerned. The royal line had sunk back to the level of a peasant, and therefore... Isaiah very carefully says, the rod comes out of the stem of Jesse. Jesse is the one. And then this is the second time we've had the mention of the branch. We said before there are 18 words in the 
Hebrew that's translated by the one English word, branch. And this is one of the titles that's given to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the 53rd chapter, he's a root out of a dry ground. Now, Dalish, the great Hebrew scholar, wrote, "...in the historical fulfillment, even the ring of the words of the prophecy is noted." And the word for branch here is netzer, netzer, the sound that sounds like it's going to be Nazareth. And the very sound of the word, as David said, is interesting. At first, so humble, he was a poor Nazarene. And that is emphasized, of course, in the New Testament. Now, this is the person, humble beginning, born yonder in Bethlehem, it's the city of David, city of Jesse also. Now, verse 2, we have here the power of the king, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And this is the sevenfold spirit here. The spirit of wisdom, understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and of the fear of the Lord. Now, will you notice this? Sevenfold spirit resting upon him. And this speaks, of course, of the plentitude of power. The word number seven does not necessarily mean perfection. It means fullness, completeness. And in that sense, of course, it speaks of perfection. But the primary thought is completeness. And here we are told in the New Testament that God gave the spirit to him not by measure. We're to be filled with the Spirit. Some of us, we just have a few drops at the bottom, and others, one-fourth filled, some half-filled. Very few Christians you meet that are really filled with the Spirit. That is, like the little girl said. The little girl prayed. She said, Lord, fill me with the Spirit. I can't hold very much, but I can run over a whole lot. You find very few that are just brimming full, running over on all sides. The Lord Jesus was the exception to that. Now we're told here, you have, first of all, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Lord Jesus Christ in his humanity went forth in the power of the Spirit. And when he comes, he's going to rule in the power of the Spirit. And now it's the Spirit of wisdom. And it's well to note these. He's been made unto us wisdom. And today, he is the one and the only one that can lead and guide you and me through this life. fact of the matter is, you and I are no match today for the world. The Lord Jesus could say, The prince of this world cometh, and he findeth nothing in me. Well, he always finds something in us. We need the spirit of wisdom today, and he is that spirit of wisdom and also an understanding. And that means a spiritual discernment. The thing today, friends, that's distressing among Christians is to find so many that have absolutely no discernment at all. I'm amazed at that. And the way that some people go after certain ones on purely a human basis. They like their looks or like the sound of their voice and never able really to comprehend 
what they're saying, whether they're true to the Word of God or not. The spirit of understanding. That's one thing I've always prayed for in the ministry, and I seem to need it more today than ever before, is, Lord, help me to discern as I go along through life. There are a great many today, friends, that you need to be aware of. Then there's some today that need to be listened to. I listened to a man on the radio the other day, driving my car in another section of the country. I say my car. It was a rented car, but it's mine then. And when I got the bill, I thought it was mine. But driving the car, listening to radio. And the man, my, I bless my heart. And he went on to say that he didn't get support. He's going to have to go off for radio. And it was in another city. And I said, my, the people in this city... Why, you'd think they'd have a spiritual discernment. He's so much better than somebody else that apparently is getting great support. And I spoke to the pastor there that I was with, and he said, yes, I know him. He says, this man is a wonderful man, wonderful Bible teacher and very humble man, and not getting the support he should have. Spirit understanding. Friends, do you ever pray for that? Ask God to give you the spirit of understanding. And if you feel like and know that you lack it, so many people listen and begin to judge and find fault with things that they have nothing to do with spiritual discernment. And you wonder, when I get letters from some of those folks, I wonder, well, what did they have in mind? They sit in judgment on some party, and they themselves lack a spiritual discernment. Understanding how important that is. And the spirit of counsel. Now, all of us need counsel. The Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever noticed that he never did ask for any advice, never asked for any at all? He never made decisions on that basis at all. He gave counsel and the spirit of might, and that's power. Oh, how we need power, that I might know him, Paul says, and the power of his resurrection. Oh, we need that today. And then the spirit of knowledge. And that doesn't come easy. I think that comes through a study of the Word of God. And then the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Now, here again, you have that which is quite wonderful. Now, we come to the purpose of the kingdom and verses 3 through 5. And I'm reading verse 3 and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked." And it's the wicked one. He'll slay the wicked one. Now, this is when Satan is having his heyday here upon the earth during the great tribulation period. And there's no deliverance for the world at that time that's humanly speaking. And even Israel cries out, My help comes not from the north or the south, east or west. There's none there. It comes from above. And at that time, the Messiah comes. And... He establishes his kingdom, and the reason for the Lord Jesus coming to this earth, the purpose is 
quite evident here, is that this earth needs a ruler, and the world hasn't voted for him and would not vote for him. I'm sure of that. But God's voted for him. And since this is God's universe, he's going to put him down here. And he's going to judge not after the sight of his eyes. You won't have to have a long, lengthy court case and then turn the criminal loose. And the thing that actually is rather terrifying and should be for believers today is this, that even believers are to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And then a thousand years and seven, thousand and seven years later, there will appear before the great white throne, the lost. And he's not going to judge any of us by the side of his eyes or by some witness. I thank the Lord for that. Paul said that he wasn't going to even judge himself because he'd misjudge. And there are two groups of people. I think that they do not really know me or understand me. I judge it from what I hear from them. One is my enemy. He doesn't know me. And my friends flatter me. And they really don't know me. If they did, they wouldn't flatter me. And some of the others, the enemy, they wouldn't say the ugly thing. One day I'm going to stand before him. Now, the thing that really troubles me is that everything that's phony in my life, he's going to bring it right out in the open. So I've been trying to get the phony part out of it. I want to be crystal clear in my life. And friends, that's going to be quite a light to turn on some believers someday, is it not? This is rather terrifying. And this speaks of his coming to establish his kingdom. And at that time, we're told, and righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. The thing that will gird his reign will be righteousness and faithfulness. The purpose of the reign of Christ on earth is to bring in a reign of righteousness and justice as well as restore the dominion lost by Adam. Now in verse 6, beginning there, we have the particulars of the kingdom. Now notice, here's one of them. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. Now, that's the day when the lion and the lamb will lie down together. Now, the only way they can lie down together today is for the lamb to be inside of the lion. A very fine Bible teacher years ago was teaching. A man stood up in the audience and said, You know, that's ridiculous. It says that the lion is going to eat hay like an ox. And that's here in verse 7. The cow and the bear shall feed. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Now, he says that's ridiculous. Anybody knows a lion doesn't eat straw. And this Bible teacher, who had a very sharp mind, he said to this fellow, he says, I'll tell you what I'll do. He says, you make a lion, and I'll make him eat straw. The one who made the lion will make him eat straw when the time comes. Verse 9, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is a kingdom that shall be worldwide. Now we come to the program of the kingdom. And in that day, verse 10, 
there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. Now, the key here is in that day. Now, that day began with the great tribulation, as we saw. It extends on into the kingdom. And this is the kingdom. And the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people. That's when God brings them back in the land. Now, when did he bring them back the first time? Well, that's when Moses led them out of Egypt and Joshua brought them into the land. Now he says, "...he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel." What is that ensign? Well, that ensign is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one. It's not some banner he lifts in the air, but it speaks of the fact that he will be the rallying center for the meek of the earth in that day. Now, that's when the meek are going to inherit the earth. And they are, friends. That's God's plan. That's God's program. And he'll bring it to pass. Now, this is a chapter then that sets that before us. Now, today, friends, we're coming to the 12th chapter of the book of Isaiah. You have our printed text or your Bible handy. You'll want to turn there and also to follow with our notes and outlines. Now, we have been following a series of prophecies that actually tell one story, beginning with chapter 7 and going now through chapter 12 here. This has been the period of prophecies given during the reign of Ahaz, a very bad king in contrast to his father and his grandfather. His grandfather was Isaiah. That's when Isaiah began his ministry among the people. Now, he's given this series, and it began with the judgment of God upon these people, and it's moved on now, and the last time... In chapter 11, we saw the kingdom established here on earth in which the Lord Jesus would reign personally. We talked about that kingdom last time. After these people came through the great tribulation, they entered the kingdom. Now, we have here in chapter 12, we reach a high note here, and we find God's people here worshiping God and singing praises to him. And here you find Israel in the temple singing praises to God and not at the wailing wall. And Israel today is at the wailing wall. That's one of the reasons I say we're not seeing the fulfillment of prophecy today. That is, their return to the land is not the return in which you see this wonderful picture here of this worship. Now let's look at it. It's a very wonderful picture of worship, and it's a very brief chapter, and it is a psalm. It's just a jewel of beauty, by the way. And here you have pure praise from redeemed hearts to God because of his salvation and because he's the creator. The curse now has been removed from the earth, and that's an occasion for praise to God for his display of goodness in creation. You and I haven't seen anything yet in nature. There's a curse on it today because today nature has a bloody claw and a bloody fang, a sharp one. 
but that'll be removed at this time. Now, this chapter, the first three verses, you have praise to the Lord Jehovah because of his salvation. And then verses 4 to 6, praise of the Lord Jehovah because of his works in creation. Now, will you notice this? I'm reading it, verse 1. And in that day... Now, here again, we have that expression, in that day. And I think we've already identified this day as beginning with the great tribulation and goes through the coming of Christ and into the kingdom that is established here upon this earth. And in that day, thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee. Though thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away, and thou comfortest me. Now, the night of sin is over, and the day of salvation has come, the day of the Lord. Now, they've gone through the night, and the light has broken. The light has come into the world, and the tribulation is past, and the storms of life are all over. And they've entered the kingdom. It's an occasion for praise. And the thing that will characterize it will be joy. Will you notice what he says here? He says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. Now, salvation here you'll notice, is not a thing, it's a person. Salvation is not a program, it is not a religion, it's not a system, it's not a ritual, it's not a liturgy. Salvation is a person, and that person is the Lord Jehovah, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the picture that we have here. And they're praising him for that. Now, verse 3, Therefore with joy shall we draw water, out of the wells of salvation. Now, this speaks of abundance and satisfaction that there'll be in the heart, and also joy will characterize it. You see, this is a time of great joy, and that's what the Lord wants us to be, is to be happy, friend. Cause us to rejoice. Cause us to sing praises to him. And I do not think we're ever a witness to him until we have that joy in our hearts. Now, we have here verse 4, And in that day, verse 4, shall ye say... Now, here we are again, in that day. So we're still in that day. And that day, of course, is now the millennium. It's the day part. It's the light part of the day. It opened with the night of sin. Now, our day begins with sunrise. The day in the Old Testament begins with sundown. You go through the night. You know, weeping may endure for the night, but joy cometh in the morning. And this is the morning of joy and a time of thanking God for salvation. But not only for that, but the fact he's the creator. And in that day shall ye say, praise the Lord. Hallelujah is the word. Call upon his name. Declare his doings among the people. Make mention that his name is exalted. Now, the doings of God are actually more than creation, but it includes that. It's everything God does. And the doings of God 
are mighty, and they're rather expansive too, by the way. Verse 5, "...sing unto the Lord, for he hath done excellent things." This is known in all the earth. God's done great things. In creation, you'll notice of the six days of renovation, it's quite interesting. Every day when it's come to an end, the Lord looked upon it and saw it as good. Now, when God looks upon a thing and sees it's good, it's good. And I think it'd be well for you and me today to thank him for a perfect salvation and thank him for the creation today, even though sin has come into the world. I notice out in my backyard that rats have burrowed under the fence and gophers and that there are ants that get in. But in spite of all that, there's the singing of the birds and there's the beauty of the flowers and the trees and the grass. And even today in the earth that's been cursed by sin, my, it's still beautiful. Think what it'll be when the curse is going to be removed. So we'll have an occasion to sing praises to him in that day, and we do today. And verse 6, Cry out and shout, thou inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. Now this is a great throbbing and pulsation outburst of a redeemed soul who's giving to God all that a poor creature can. Hallelujah. And we talk today about dedication. We don't even know what it means, friends. They'll know in that day, and we will too.